Welcome back to the podcast. This week's guest is Steve Firth. Steve is the bassist of 90s band Embrace. Embrace has now been going for almost 25 years. We spoke about his early life growing up, his first steps into the music and the various jobs that he did before that. We spoke about Embrace's career, which includes seven studio albums and a seven-year hiatus in between. We also spoke about Steve's other bands that he's in, Land Sharks and One-Sided Horse. And at the end, we picked his four heroes to come for a dinner party. I hope you all enjoy the show. I'll be back again soon with another episode. Anyway, so thanks for coming on, Steve, uh, bass player of Embrace. Uh, what I do with the podcast at the start, I just I like to go back to how you grew up, your early life growing up, where you mm. where you were, things like that. So just kind of fire away with that. What really really early before the band and everything? Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of get a a. Uh, kind of when I think back in my early life I think the best representation on TV has been the royal family it's kind of that sort of thing you know sort of lower middle class kind of my dad were aspiring to be an accountant but for a long time we were skin Sunday dinners were you know fruit salad for pudding and all that with squirted cut cream on yeah out the different cups and everything you know <laughs> I like the week we're getting the beano on a Thursday I remember that God, seems like black and white times now when you think about it. You know, no phones, yeah, no, no mobiles and all that. It's hard to think back that far, isn't it? It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I went to a, sort of a, well, there were two schools in our area. One was like a big comprehensive, which were a bit scary. And then there was a boys sort of grammar school where everyone aspired to go to. And uh, I ended up going to the grammar school. About 460 boys, no girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, teachers were like, from a different era, proper, you know, nasty fuckers that came and you kept your head down or else you'd get into a lot of trouble. So it was really two or three years, the early days were really scary. Then all these sort of Second World War teachers sort of retired and then a new sort of yeah, modern came in and it wasn't so bad then. But yeah, I don't look back on my school days. Like a lot of my friends still think it's the best time of their life and I don't. I think it was a bit, you know, Certain, I remember skiving off a lot of Mondays because we had double chemi- chemistry and double physics with a twat of a teacher and he used to, oh, we're going to be there every Monday to miss that. I remember that. Um, yeah, just normal. And then kind of went to unit. I did, did, never never knew what I wanted to do in my life at all. I just know, knew I didn't want to be in an office. Mm-hmm. Well, nine to five. Never aspired to money and, you know, suburban life or all that. I just wanted to live it. Do something yeah. different. So I ended up going to like Liverpool for three years and doing art, psychology, and taking a lot of drugs and having a lot of fun and mm-hmm. came out of that, not knowing what the fuck I was going to do. Then ended right. up moving, moved to Crawley for three years. No, for a year because my mate, his family moved to Crawley now down by Gatwick and said, yeah. "Oh, there's jobs down here. Get a job tomorrow if you come down." So me and a mate, it was a time when and I don't know how old you. Are, you are, but Norman Tebbit said, get on your bike and look for work kind of thing. So right. we fucking, me and my mate got trained out of London, um, slept in his garage for a couple of weeks, got a job day one, we were there and mm-hmm. started working and 
we had kind of lots of adventures and did about 12 jobs in a year. So I'd worked on shop floors, yeah. offices, bin or a bin man for three months. Um, so I did my share, I did the share of seeing what jobs are out there, you know, where it's like to work 12 hour shifts and night shifts and all this. So mm-hmm. my wife, my wife um, is from Crawley. All right. So, I mean, I've had like 12 episodes of this podcast and see the amount of times Crawley's come up. And really? It's, it's, it's mental. Um, I didn't realise the the history of it until we were talking about it during the World Cup. Yeah. She found out Gala Southgate was for Crawley. Really? Uh, and we went down a rabbit hole of Crawley and we found all these people. It's a massive campus state, really, all new builds. And so the, be, cure, the cure were for there. Yeah, the, this met a friend down there used to go on about the cure all the time. I reckon they were two yeah. years school. They were always going about Lawrence Tollhurst. Yeah, no, Lauren, Lawrence, Lawrence, no. <laughs> I don't know if he did or not, but he probably did. Yeah, but yeah we stood there and eventually we got made homeless and because uh, we moved in with this nut job guy and he, he was about three months behind on the rent when we moved in. So we were kicked out a week later. So we were homeless, slept on someone's floor for a couple of weeks till she got fed up with us. So I ended up living in a tent for about four months while still working, <laughs> having a bath once a week, whether you needed it or not, you know, that sort of thing. And we got yeah. a bit rough. <laughs> Popped home one weekend to see my mum and dad. Um, and my mum just said, do you want a bacon sandwich? Because I'd gone vegetarian as well. <laughs> and she said, do you want a bacon sandwich? I said, yes. And I just had this bacon sandwich. I thought, fuck it, I'm not going back to Crawley now. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just ended up working in uh, Bradford sort of area on a, in an office, which I didn't want to do, just temporary, which turned yeah. into six years. And then you start offering you more money and then you get comfortable and you buy a car and then you've got to pay the debts for that. And then you get a mortgage and then suddenly it's trapped into this life, aren't you? Of always yeah. spending more than you can afford. So yeah, which sure. wasn't what I wanted it to be really. I wanted to have more fun than that. Mm. So is that when, when- when did kind of music come in? I take it this music was kind of in the background all this time. We always had music on in the house and always had the radio and I always listened to charts. And one of the, I mean, the old days, it's cliche if you sat listening to the charts with your fingers over the playing record button mm-hmm. on, your, on your little tape thing. And um, yeah, I used to love the sweet and mud and uh, T Rex and all these 70s sort of glam rockers. I remember mm-hmm. that was my first love. And then uh, Used to go to bed early to listen to John Peel. I mean, John Peel, what were you on about nine o'clock till 11? I can't remember. I remember yeah, I going. So. Used to listen to John Peel religiously every night and once again, listen, to, you know, ready to record anything. So he got, John Peel was everything to me in them days, you know, for two or three years. He mm-hmm. got all my music from him. And then all my first gigs were like Dickies, uh, Shams, not Shams 69, uh, Susie and the Banshees, Cure, Joy Division. Um, Damned, Stranglers, Clash. So that yeah. was my 14, 15, 16 was all punk and, you know, mm-hmm. and the best time ever for music still for me because that's, you know, when you're that age, that stays with you forever, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, I've, you know, I've always had music in my life and I, I love the like, Manchester scene, I love the Britpop scene. I, I just don't know what music is at the moment because so, I'm too old no. for it. It's not meant for me. So, it's all, yeah, it's all pop, TikTok stuff and all that is kind of... Yeah, I'm more into like I'm buying Rolling Stones albums nowadays, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, a lot of prog stuff. I've bought an Auckland album and stuff. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, so 
but I'm never very musical at all. My, my dad, there's no music in family or anything like that. It's just, uh, I think I saw Stiff Little Fingers and just thought they looked cool as, and I wanted to be on stage doing that. And right. was mum to buy me a guitar for my 15th birthday, which were a little cheap K guitar, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And I got it home and I had no idea how to play it or anything. There was no internet, no you know tutorials, nothing like that. No one at school knew anything about it. No one was interested. Just got it home and I thought I'd sound like the Sex Pistols. I thought I'd do a big chord and be, I'd be away. And it just <laughs> louder acoustic guitar, innit? Yeah. So, like, what the fuck's this? And then you'd go out and buy a songbook and you'd want to learn, whether, you know, Anarchy in the UK, and it'd be like, Lulu, skip to Malu or come by R or something. <laughs> what the hell's this? I didn't want this crap. We eventually formed a band at school. We just sang songs about each other, teachers, really. It was just a stupid. Yeah. Like, I mean, thought, half Man, Half Biscuit was probably the closest sort of band we were. You know, the really early Half Man, Half Biscuit stuff, mm-hmm. where they just been funny, we were like that. We, ne- we never really did any gigs, but we'd, we'd put up posters everywhere and sort of pretend we were big, cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm still doing that now. <laughs> we, mates, we, we get a band, we get a fictional band. We've never, we've never played anything together, but we pretend we're a band. Yeah, we used to do like Monty Python quotes underneath it and all that, you know. <laughs> Put posters up around Huddersfield for some reason. I don't know why we did it, but yeah, it's fun. You know, when you're at an all boys school, it's all about piss take and uh, you know humour yeah. and you know, no else to do. So, how did that progress then? Did you um, join any band, like any bands in Amia? We're at college. I've sort of joined about three different bands, and one of them did a big gig once. They had like the big end of term thing. They had a band, Icicle Works. Actually, they were right. on, and played about a thousand people. Mm-hmm. And we were supporting them. We had no gear, and they let us borrow their gear, which was really nice. So we sounded really good that night. And uh, we just did a weird mixture of songs. I actually, think we did like loads of cover versions. We did about four cover versions, a couple of our own stuff that we'd written. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it's, it was quite good. But the bands are like herding sheep. You know, everyone's got different ideas. Yeah. It's really everyone interested. And if there's, you know, there's no no one pushing it. It kind of falls apart very quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think after that, I joined a band called The Exit, which was a punk covers band. And then we started doing our own stuff. But I just remember doing a gig in a pub once, and they had screens behind us. On you know, I thought, oh, this is good. They got screens up. You know, this will be. Good. But everyone's watching boxing while we were playing, and I just thought, this is not yeah. good. <laughs> embarrassing. And so I gave it all up then. And then you know, famously about. Three or four years later, um, I was working in an office, had a suit. The, the cats, I got two cats, and they scratched it up in the middle of the night, running up and down it. So, like, next day, I, were on, I needed a wardrobe to put this suit in, my one suit for work. And, um, yeah, I got the yellow pages, looked in the back, and there was uh, just all... I always looked in the band sections, and it was, like, you know, band into Stone Roses, Oasis... PJ Harvey, Pixies, Nirvana, and I thought, Smiths, I thought, these are all my favourite bands. And so I rang him up and he lived half a mile up the road from me. And it actually turned out Danny's dad. Uh-huh. He'd go drinking with my dad at the bowling club. Got <laughs> in each night and they'd go, do you know any bass players to my dad? And my dad go, no, no idea, I don't know any bass players. And I'm dead, yeah, so half a mile down the road from him. So, yeah, 
and Danny and Richard went to the same school as me, you know, but I was kind of older, so I never, you don't miss with people, mix with no. people at school, you don't even talk to them. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm very local and incestuous. <laughs> so, and that was the start of things to come, and I mean, that's was, so when was that? That was like, 1996. Danny trying to become a songwriter rather than just before that it were all big riffs and a lot of noise and then he wanted to become a proper songwriter so it took a while for that to happen to find yeah. his own. What was um, like? What was the dynamic like between Danny and Richard and then uh, and Tom? What was that like for the rest of years to deal with in the band? Uh, it's never been like fiery like the the, the Gallagher's. It's never no. been that standard. But yeah, brothers do. You know, get on each other's tits, and they've got a lot of baggage from you know, younger brother trying to express himself, and older brother you know thinking he's the boss. Um, and if you can't take sides, that's the main lesson. You know, if like Rick I used to go, oh, Danny's a right fucking platinum for saying that, and you go, yeah, Rick, I'll get involved because they'll be friends again next day, and they're stuck with each other, aren't they, forever? So you don't, yeah. want, you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to take sides, and. Uh, they get on 90% of the time, they get on very well. It's just, uh, you know, they can wind each other up. But then, yeah. you know, things like that, if you're stuck with someone. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's because they're in the positions as well as singer and kind of lead guitarist as well. So it's kind of. They're the two fiery ones out there, you yeah. know. Like, yeah. Best player and drummers just keep at the back and keep our heads down. And... Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I've been a big fan of the band right for the start. I think it was because. Like Britpop kind of when Britpop came out and everybody was into Oasis, and then it you were kind of labeled all oh, that as a, the new Oasis. Northern Two Brothers, that's the first question you got asked every, every yeah. interview. You know, and they want another Oasis kind of thing, and we, we weren't really like that. We, we, I mean, we came across bad in the press because we said a lot of stupid stuff, but we always said it with a smile on our face, and it made us look. In written word, it made us look arrogant and stuff, but really we were like winking and laughing and joking. Yeah. And the side we were that kind of person, you know, that type of group rather. Remember we went on, we had a and me journalist come on tour with us for a week and we looked after him. We were on the tour bus drinking with him every night, giving him all our ride, having a right laugh. And he was lovely. Then he went away and wrote a fucking horrible article about us. <laughs> and that's how two-faced the enemy were. You know, they just like, they, they, you know what it's like enemy was, they big you up for one week and then three weeks later you were like the worst band ever. Then Yeah, you know, yeah. once you know. it once you had uh, another band come along, they're kinda they're not interested. And if you were an indie fan, you were a bit like that as well, weren't you? You wanted to be first with every band and Yeah. Well, well there, was a, there was a time when I was kinda younger as well where see once you like a band and then see once you get to a certain level of success, you kinda go off them because oh they're, they're too big now and everybody likes them. That's a not Nirvana time situation, the Kurt Cobain, isn't it? He didn't like people he didn't like, like yeah. in the band. He didn't like jocks and, you know, rednecks like in the band. He wanted nice people that he liked to like the band, but, you know. Yeah. And what, that's the indie snobbery, isn't it? That's 
enemy stuff. We all, I grew up with enemy and like John Peel and all that stuff. So I've not, you know, I'm as bad as everyone else, really. I suppose mm-hmm. if it's if it gets big, you think, well, it can't be that good because the great masses like it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah not the weather people like me. <laughs> so, I mean, the first album um, yeah. is obviously where I came into you. Said right, the first album, and it's it's filled with anthems. It's like yeah. kind of it's it's miles away from Britpop. The way they like. We thought we were, you see. We never, we were stuck up north and we were never part of that London scene at all. We didn't really understand all that Britpop and didn't really want, we liked it, but we didn't want much to do with it. We were just more mm-hmm. sort of across the Atlantic, I suppose, and doing a bit more, singing about emotions and relationships rather than coolness and Camden and all that. Yeah. So, I mean, did, who was the kind of main player in kind of writing these songs? Would that be like Danny and Rick? Danny and I'd say at that point, Danny, Rick sort of came into his own later and became more of a force in the band, but at that time it was Danny driving it. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, you, you, you get that impression him on stage as well. It's like he's he's got a vision of these songs. And yeah. like the first album, like I was working, I can mind working up in Oban. I was working in a hotel for a month and like the scenery there was like immense and all the mountains and things like that. And, the good, the good will out album. See you on yeah, Walkman. Yeah. What I'm really? looking at that is is one of the best albums I've ever listened to, and it, it's nice. always for that scenery. That's what I think of when I, yeah. I think of that music. That's so, where it's kind of it's, very, it's kind of big epic, yeah, big epic anthems. I do a lot of walking with music on as well, and I you know certain bands suit that more than others, you know. Yeah. So at this time as well. It, Quite early on, you started like the the secret gigs, and you done. I don't know. You were well into double figures with secret gigs, weren't you? Um, whose idea was that? Was that again, Danny? I think originally it was. We we were playing Glastonbury, and we didn't realise when you sign up to play a big festival, you kind of sign an exclusivity thing where you're not allowed to play any gigs. Mm-hmm. Say three months before, three months after. Oh, it might be like in that half of the country, you know, to play in the gigs. And we were like um, sort of down south on the coast. I don't know what we were doing, actually. I might have a photo show or an interview or something. And we're like, why can't we play the gigs? Um, manager told us he, he signed an exclusivity thing. We're like, bollocks, we're bored. Let's... So we just took our guitars down to the beach and did a little impromptu gig mm-hmm. to people walking past with the dogs and stuff like that. And uh, kind of start from there, really. And uh, we start coming up with weird and wonderful ideas and people would start finding places for us to go and play. And it was all very, it was all very guerrilla gig. I think that was the term at the time when it? it would be here yeah. at this time and, you know, little hints and there were like passwords to get into the secret gig site. And it made it quite mm-hmm. exciting. People had to invest a bit of energy into it to find out where they were. And Yeah, that, that's how I never went to any. I couldn't have <laughs> I couldn't have asked for that. But you've done one. You've done one before Tina Park as well, and then I had a video or a DVD, and he's done. He's took people to like Spain or something. Can you yeah, yeah, that? yeah. So that was uh, that was in the lean times when we were all working again, and uh, Mickey, our keyboard player, was working for this guy called Tony Stanton in Leeds. who was doing he was doing advertising for some. I don't know what exactly what it was, but he was selling advertising space, and this guy had a luxury yacht. 
and it, it, this guy just said, like, why don't you come off, fly over to my place in uh, New York? He's got this million and a half pound yacht. You could invite six people out there. And, it, and we thought, brilliant. We did a competition where they had to, like, send in a video of them. can't remember exactly what it was. It was either them doing a song or them doing the, a silly video. We picked the best staff dozen. Tony, because of his, how high up and business-like he was, he got us really cheap deals with Jet2 from Leeds Bradford Airport. So we flew them all out. We did a gig, uh, did a secret gig on a boat. We did like one, saw this cafe place. It was beautiful, actually. It was one of the best things we've ever done in our lives. Yeah. Uh, that was probably the highlight in terms of fun, because normally they're like pain in the ass. <laughs> we lose a lot of money doing them, and it's like at the end of your day, it's worth doing but but that's is the thing like there's no any other bands that i've ever seen kind of do that sort of thing and like the engagement that you've got with the fan base is i think that's why we've survived actually because we've got this fan base that's stuck by us and stuff like this we've done has probably created that or helped to keep it together you know i mean the worst one we did in terms of effort was someone suggested why don't we do a gig in the dark at this mill in this derelict mill in Bradford. Mm. Uh, I don't know why it thought it was a good idea. We spent like probably two weeks. We had, we, the, Rick had a, where we were rehearsing was a, a barn, had all big windows in the roof. So we had to get up on ladders, had to black it all off, black all the windows out, turn all lights off and get it as dark as we possibly could to sort of. Uh-huh. Get the right conditions, and then we stood there. We could work out, see our hands. We can't play. <laughs> and then it was like that. We need some. We need to like get some fluorescent paint. We painted it on old frets on your guitar, and you go. Oh, I can't see my fingers, but I can see the frets. But I don't know where I'm, fingers. Are, I can't see my hand. And then it was like nail varnish, fluorescent nail varnish. So then you can see your fingers. We only lasted for five minutes. So then we had to come up with this plan. Whereas after every song, you turn your back to the audience. There's a strobe comes on flashes and it recharges your fingers so then you could see for the next song <laughs> <laughs> but the amount of work went into that sort of like five guys spending two weeks doing it probably cost us a couple of grand and uh, <laughs> about 50 people came to see it <laughs> <laughs> uh, life's all about creating memories and silly things like that are great that's yeah. that's a brilliant story i've never heard that and that's amazing um second album drawn from memory yeah. Uh, I don't know, no maybe as many anthems on it. It's a bit more emotional, a bit softer pace, but still a really good album. Uh, I can mind coming and seeing these two weeks in a row at the Barrowlands right. about then. Um and I came every time I came to see these, I came to the Barrowlands. So funny story about one of the Barrowlands gigs, I came, me and my pal and my big sister. And we were standing in front of you, right down the front, and see your wee backstage pass, your wee triple A pass you had. Yeah. It was like, it was a picture of you wearing like a, a Afro wig or something. Oh, it was our keyboard player. Right. Uh, I it was, it was Beaver, our Yeah, like Well, I thought it was a picture of Bob Dylan. And I was, <laughs> pe- I was pestering you the full gig, like, oh, can I have that, you know, can I get your pass? And to the point where I was like, ah, you can you can have my sister, I'll let you I'll let you go with my sister. So at the end of the gig, you, you came down and handed me this pass and it turned ah. out it was it wasn't Bob Dylan. 
I've still got it somewhere that's up my loft, but I, yeah, I was a bit disappointed with that. It is. <laughs> yeah, you can't hear anything when you're on stage. You can get yeah. It's just a ball of noise and craziness. So, Fantastic. Some of the, I mean, some of the bands that have supported you, like, they were, they were also different. So I've seen Alfie, Manchester band Alfie, and then yeah. I think the following week when you came, it was Cooper Temple Clause, which is completely different. So... What was the script with, how did you go about picking tour support? Was that management or record in the, label? In the early days, it's proper, old, you know, old-fashioned way you get people send you demo tapes and you get like box of tapes and you listen to them and you go, oh, they're good, they're good. That's how I think Danny got found Coldplay by a little you know, cassette tape. And these mm-hmm. are good. Um, most of the early ones were just us picking them. You know, these are good. You know, we like these. Um, I, I like Cooper Temple Clause band, probably not the right sort of support band for us, they're a bit heavy for your average. Yeah, but that, yeah. this is the thing, like if I probably wouldn't get into Cooper Temple Clause if they hadn't been supporting you in a, like, because I've always made a point of going and seeing the support bands. Yeah, well, always a good support band. We always used to say that, you know, we, we should charge them to, to play with us because a lot of them went on to do good things, you know. Yeah. You know, it's did well, like JJ72 and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Alfie were good. I liked Alfie. Gomez and Travis were played with. They were not big things, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, I mean, he's, he's obviously an ear for, for a, a good band. It's like you. We like music, you know. Yeah. We're like very taste between us, and uh, but we like something. It's good. If you've got tunes, it's, you know, I like it. It's, it's not really that complicated. <laughs> the other, um, the other connection with Oasis that I see is B sides. Oasis were a band that had amazing yeah. B-sides and yours were the same. I think we were looking at Ride more than Oasis when we started because we all love Ride and that those early mm-hmm. were fantastic and uh, we wanted to just like, I don't know, create a little, it's, it's more than a single, our singles are just all gone, you know, three minutes to turn it over. It's, a lot of people don't even bother with B-sides sometimes, but when it's like four songs, it's like a little mini. You know, yeah. That's the band, it's fantastic. Yeah, we were good when the the charts stopped you being able to do that. We'd have carried on doing it. It's got the fantastic. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, that changed for some reason, and you couldn't do it anymore. So then, and everyone ended up doing three versions of the same bloody song and extended mixes and remixes, and mm-hmm. you know, people got ripped off more. Well, I mean, some of the B sides you would think some some of them were could be better than songs on the album as well, yeah. but. Yeah. How would that work? Would that just be, you maybe thought that one wouldn't fit with a collection of songs on an album? Sometimes it was a case of, you know, we've got, you know, the single's finished, but it's going to be out in two weeks. You, need, you haven't got in a B-side, so you'd rush into a studio and sort of knock three songs together really quickly without as much thought. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was just better because we're freer for that and we're less, you know, less thinking about and just doing what we do naturally. Right. So, uh, and then it's kind of like, shit, we've put that out and that should have been on an album. You don't realise till later sometimes. Sometimes you're far too close to it. You know, by the time you've recorded a song, sometimes you don't even like it anymore because you've heard it that many times. <laughs> you know, you've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times in all different versions, different speeds, different keys. You know, we, you know, we don't do stuff easily and embrace. It takes a long time sometimes. So occasionally something will slip through like a B-side that we're just recording three, four hours start to finish. And that might be better than anything we've poured over for months, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, like any of that's listening to that, I would kind of 
or she's got to go back and listen to embrace B size because some yeah, we used to have like I think it was our Dave Crefield who recorded our first album and he's like a little tape of B sides it had too good for a B side written on them mm-hmm. and that was like kind of a, a bit of an embrace phrase really I remember too good for a B side yeah you know that's the album uh, if you've never been go to number one as well so this is your second number one um, I think it went to number eight oh did it is that yeah. no, I, I've got that as drawn from memory went to number eight might have been six and eight so Right. Album was number one, and then the fourth and fifth were number one. Were they? Right. Yeah. I, 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 oh no, sorry. Do you know what? I'm, I'm reading that wrong. It's number nine. Sorry. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll edit all that out. I so number performing up to that moment. That's why we got dropped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's what I was going to say. I was at number one, but I've not really got much to say about it. It was not um, after the first two albums. The, the third album was not I don't know, it, it just didn't come across the same way. Yeah, we agreed. Yeah, yeah. we uh, second us a long time to re- to like that album again. Um, mm. uh, for whatever reason, it's quite ambitious, but it doesn't quite work. And there's, uh, it's all we all thought it was a bit slow and ponderous, and it needed a bit of a kick up the ass. Yeah, I mean, there has some good songs on it, like, like see you at the end. Like, yeah, wonder over some nice tunes on it that we probably needed a couple more big anthems and uh, I think yeah. the pressure to deliver like you are because you go away for 18 months in this business everyone's forgotten about you and have gone to another band so we'll try to do it a bit quicker than normal um, yeah we admit I mean like I say I've, I've rediscovered it now and I really like it again but for mm-hmm. 10, 15 years not we, we've all just called it wish, wish we'd never bothered because <laughs> it didn't get us dropped I mean, it went to number nine in the charts which is a fantastic achievement you know if you'd have said to me as a kid I'm going to have a number nine album in charts I'd have, wouldn't have believed you I'd have, it was yeah. in that time it wasn't good enough you know because we were quite yeah. an expensive band uh, you know in them days MTV you had to have 35 millimeter films for it to go on MTV which cost you about 10 grand before you started in film stock so a lot of those videos were like 60, 100 grand. So that's mm. just going on your bill. And you have four of those and you're like a company half a million almost. Then you've got your album and suddenly you're only selling whatever it was, 150,000. Yeah. And see what, you know. So, Still, I mean, if they get dropped, I mean, the, the, your next album out of nothing. Um, yeah. it, it's like, that. I mean, that got to number one. Yeah. Uh, off the back, do you think a lot it's to do with the gravity song? Uh, maybe, but I probably think it's a great album without gravity. And it's, you know, yeah, it's probably- but obviously, like, I'm, I'm more thinking about like critical reception for music publications. I mean, what we'd kind of finished the album, and then like Daniel was like good friends with Chris and used to play each other songs all the time over the phone and stuff and meet up. And, um, Daniel was like that song. He did a really slow piano version live a bit. Um, mm-hmm. I think Chris wanted to get it on, on his album, uh, but the rest of the band didn't like it. So he rang Danny up and said, uh, you like that gravity, don't you? Why don't you do a version of it? I said, all right. I asked the band, came in the next day into the studio, 
we all thought, yeah, let's have a go at it. Um, we did a version of it, which was all right. Uh, played it to our manager, who played it to the record company. The record company went, wow. <laughs> yeah, Coldplay, this is what we want, you know. So they put it on the album. Um, we were pleased to put it on the album and we're not embarrassed about it. And, you know, we love well, the song. Well, well yeah. they weren't going to use it, and it's um, I've heard they are, they've recorded it later on. But a slower version on piano. For, yeah. Yeah, your version's better. I think so. But I mean, I mean, I, I, you had Ashes on that album as well. That it, it was a, a cracking album. It was like a return to form. It's such. I think Ashes is a better song for me, but so yeah. I think it's all right. But whether it got to number one, who knows? And it definitely helped in terms of record company being excited and pushing it and probably spending money on it and all that. So yeah, probably doing some favors. It definitely, like the album, I mean, these were only away like three years for, if you've never been to that, but it, it was kind of like Phoenix with the Flames, like, yeah, the ashes. Yeah, well, we, we got dropped and then we had, we had you know, I remember it was on Rick's birthday, actually, got a phone call from our manager saying, oh, happy birthday, Rick, by the way, you've been dropped. Uh, um, and we didn't let it get us down, we just kind of like, because it, got a, a barn that we, we just got together and decided we're going to spend three months converting this barn into his own studio, mm-hmm. store all equipment there. We can rehearse there and everything will be free. There's no you know costs involved and let's just get to work on the new album. But I think we had nothing really left over. So it was starting again and it did take three or four years. Well, however long it was, I can't really remember, but it was yeah. a long time. I mean, spent a lot of time in the studio going through hundreds of ideas and then all sat there with notebooks and going, I like that verse from that one, that chorus from that one, and can we add these together? And, you know, it went on forever. You know, I don't think it's probably the best way. Five of you all have an opinion sometimes, it's best just to have one yeah. guy. That's the embrace where we are kind of a democracy. Uh, probably slows us down a bit. Yeah, um, but yeah. I think he's on a stage where you can kind of take a couple of years here and there to yeah. kind of... I don't think we had anything to gain from having a quick turnaround there. I think, you know, yeah. it worked perfectly for us. And then we got all the big Lazarus rising from the flames and all this. Here they are, Phoenix from the flames, rather. And, uh, yeah, got loads of great reviews again. And we're back, which is a very rare thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So. The following year, you brought out the compilation, Dry Kids, which got a lot of B-sides on it. Still no, still no enough, in my opinion. There's... Yeah, yeah, and then the following year after that, um, new album, this new day, that's that's for me as a Scotland fan is probably the darkest period, even an embrace fan, bringing out a World Cup song. (laughs) I can understand that totally, yeah. But and the the irony is, there's only me that likes football in the band. The rest of them, you know, not really bothered. Right. It was literally a thing where. We had this song called Mountain Song, and it's this, it's that song, but we had no lyrics to it. And uh, we got a phone call. Our manager came in. We were staying in London in a hotel somewhere. I can't remember where it was. I said, oh, the FA have asked if you if you want to do a next England song. And we're like, what? We don't like football, do they know that? It's like, well, they're just asking for people. Have they got anything that's suitable? Big, they came to you because you do big anthemic sort of things. Uh, we sat around and said, well, should we give it a go? Send them that mountain song we've done and say, we'll put some lyrics to that. 
they sent him that the next day and said, oh, they like that, but can you have it ready for Monday? So it was literally that quick. Uh, someone had obviously let them down at the last minute. So they came close. Um, and we had to go. Uh, we didn't want to have, they said, oh, we'll get our England football team on there. You know, we'll get David Beckham on there and get them all up. Mm-hmm. None of them had anything to do with us. They wanted like Kanye West to do it or something like that. <laughs> uh, it was all like, yeah, you'll be fucking millionaires this time next year if we do all this crap, you know. Uh, we re-released the album up with it on. Um, yeah, it's, it, I think if you ask like, so if you ask Rick, he probably wishes he'd never done it. Whereas me, I'm kind of like, well, we had yeah. a go and it wasn't terrible. And you know, it's not, you know, it didn't destroy us as a band. They probably put a lot of Scottish people on, but we never played it in Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, you hadn't get, you hadn't get it alive if you played it. That would have been funny at the Battlelands, wouldn't it? Here we go. <laughs> my pals, uh, my pals, the drummer of a band, the La Fontaines, and they they recorded a a song just there for the Euros for the a Scotland song for the Euros. Yeah. Uh, wasn't it an official one or anything? But I think that might uh, go to the most kind of plays out of all the Scottish songs this year. Yeah. Um, so See, I do like my football and I do like World Cups, and so for me it was I was it's exciting. We got invited to like. Go and see like Old Trafford and watch England lead Jamaica. Actually, we didn't get a lot out of it. We, we got four tickets to see England v Sweden in Cologne. Mm-hmm. Five in the band. They sent us four tickets. So like, <laughs> he went and our manager and Rick's brother and and it cost me about a grand in flights because our flights were ridiculous to get yeah. there. Uh, and we had a good time in Germany. Uh, yeah, watched the two one or two or. I can't remember. It was a good experience. We got to see it with our wags and, you know, I, I was sat next to Ray Winston and all this sort of this, this <laughs> It's like, wow. And we're there, you could drink beer while you're watching. So we were like, oh, there were two pints thinking, this is fucking great, isn't it? You can drink beer and watch football. <laughs> Proper Northern Oinks. But yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not, not going to There's, there's like, not many people have um, got to record a World Cup song. So. Yeah, you can I mean, see that. It didn't. It didn't do us a lot of favors, but it didn't do us any too much harm. <laughs> well, that's just what I was going to say because obviously, after this, you kind of went in a, a hiatus. So, do you think that was caused by the World Cup? So, actually, what happened was because we were kind of suddenly in another level. Instead of like talking to the NME and you know the music journal, suddenly it was the Sun and the News of the World. And suddenly it's quite scary because these people are not talking about music. They're looking for angles. They're looking to find something horrible about you in the past. And we didn't like it at all. We felt really out of our depth and didn't want to be part of this. And then also, because we were probably the most successful we'd been at that time, we did tour, then we went to America, then we did a Europe, and then we went to America, and then we went to, did another tour. By the end of it, Danny's voice was knackered. Mm-hmm. We were all knackered and needed some time off. So we had meeting and it was like Danny said look I need some time away from it you know I'm absolutely drained I need time and it was like it's just the end of the band I remember I said this is the end of the band and I said it's not the end of the band but I need time away and I don't know how long it's going to be but it's not going to be short it's not going to be six months I might need a year or two away and it turned into eight years or something yeah he ended up owning a nightclub with his mates in London then he set up a nightclub in Manchester who did die yeah Ended up they're running a night, night club in Manchester, the Moho, yeah. I'm thinking. 
made success of it that it was this like the hardest thing he's ever done in his life running up uh, you know with like 16 hour days so yeah it finally had enough of that and thought i was better off in the band right. so we got we got a message uh, yeah let's get together and it was like one of the best days ever mm-hmm. yeah spend and a year that. and like, i mean how do you feel when you get something like that is that kind of have you been have you been waiting in that call for and what i've been doing is i've been writing loads of music and kept sending it to them trying like right. back and stuff come on Dan, let's get some on this sing this and uh, yeah. we all kind of go on it's amazing how you just like get on with your own life and you know make other plans and you know we all sort of go on doing stuff i would i had loads of plans and i was going to start doing the pounds and trying to make money out of property and stuff but at the time my mother-in-law got in really poorly with cancer and ended up nursing her for 18 months while she died of lung cancer so yeah that it's, it's horrible and life gets in the way life yeah exactly yeah. Suddenly it's like, shit it's two years i mean i used to go out drinking with rick all the time so we've always kept in touch mike and you know we're all we're all quite local to each other we drink together occasionally you know yeah so, i mean so the, the new album then coming out, I mean, that it was like, as you're saying, like, it was like getting the band back together, like I caught the arms, it was the same for me and my pal, because me and my pal kind of grew up with Embrace, my best pal, and we'd like, so we went every every gig in Scotland we were at. So obviously we've had seven, eight years with these. So I got, I got my pal, a ticket for this. I kept it quiet. It was his thirtieth birthday, so got my ticket for embrace at the Carlin Academy in Glasgow. Um, oh, yeah. So what happened with that was um, Mickey, Mickey Dale, keyboard player. I've been messaging him because I thought it's my mate's thirtieth. We've been a fan of the band for the start. I'll try and get to meet up with you. So. I turned up telling him, I says, look, I'm going to meet the band before the gig. And he was all nervous about it. So we went to the pub um, and we had a couple of, couple of beers and I had like 20% battery in my phone. So I was like, right, I'll turn the, the Wi-Fi off so I'm not using all the battery. Um, and he's like, we'll have another pint. Because he was like really nervous about meeting me. We'll have another pint. We'll have another. So it went on, it was about half six or something. And then I said, like, right, I'll turn on, turn on the, the battery to see. And I got yeah. these messages from Mickey saying, he's need to be outside at the back door in the next five minutes. So we'd missed. Because my mate was that feared to meet you. We had too many drinks in the pub and we missed you. And it's like, I said, this is your fault, man. This is meant to be a surprise for you. And, and we missed it because of him. But it was a brilliant gig. Um, and I, I thought the songs... Eight years down the line, I thought your your songs were kind of more current and more modern. Was that intentional to kind of modernise the songs? Kind of there was like mentions to Facebook and things like that. Sound wise, or yeah, just more the lyrics of what Danny was saying. It probably it probably did sound a bit more modern as well. We're not people that stuck in the past, you know. Like certain bands have got style and that's it for the rest of their life, and they just hark back to a golden era, uh, era when music was great. Yeah. It's very, very, very current with all chart stuff, and they listen to a lot of 
what I call pop music, and I don't. I listen to a load of weird, I like Fall and Cardiacs and yeah. bands and stuff. But um, they're very current. Mickey's very current like that as well. Um, so yeah, it's, but you know, you just absorb it all, don't you? And you know, mm-hmm. get new likes every year, and we just pop. People like music, you know. A lot of people love music in the teens, then they get married and they get families, and then that's it in it. Or then they might come back to it ten years down the line and, and realize they're missing music. But yeah, we've always been into music. We're doing what we want to do and what we love, really. You know, life without music is it's a, it's only half a life, isn't it? Really, I don't know. I don't understand people who don't like music. You know, I know. No, people, I know some people like it. Oh, I like a, a Whitney Houston track. He'll have one compilation. <laughs> Yeah. What? You don't listen to music? Jesus. Well, that's just a hint. See if you listen to one song, surely it gets you into. When I, when I hear like a song, I think, right, I like that. I need to go and listen to all the rest of that band. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you got some people that can detach from it easily. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, I'm an addict to a vinyl. That's my problem now. Just, yeah, like, okay. I can see that behind you. That's half of it, the other half behind yeah. you. <laughs> I'll that be that I haven't listened to yet. I buy stuff just not just to keep it in wrapper nowadays. I'm that sad, you know, just thinking that'll be worth something in five years and all. It's got like the last Fontaine's DC album on clear vinyl because it's like mm-hmm. one of my favourite albums in the last five years is that and uh, just want another copy of it. Yeah, they're like that band too. I like them, yeah. Um another thing about that gig, merchandise wise, um, you're selling tea towels. <laughs> yeah. That's just like a new hang. That's the first time I've seen tea towels sold at a gig. What was uh, the thinking behind that? Before Christmas. I wonder if it was before Christmas. We're thinking about Christmas presents and things like that. No, it was, it was summertime. I can mind because my mate was going to watch the FA Cup final the next day. All right. So, middle of the yeah. summer. Yeah, it's probably Mickey's. It's Mr. Merchant. And it's, it's very good at thinking up strange ideas. There was a, an apron as well, wasn't there? There's tea towels and an apron. Yeah. If you go a lot of like little punk gigs like I do, they have about 50 different designs of T-shirts and everything because that's how they make the money. It's the vinyl T-shirts. So you don't get anything from being played on Spotify and all this. So you've got to try and make your money where you can, haven't you? Yeah. That's, I would, that's like my pals again, the La Fontaine. They brought a, a, the, the drummer, my pal, he wrote a book. It was basically just like 12 stories of him making an arse himself whilst being a drummer. Um, but they done that. Buy the book. If you buy the book, you get the album as well. So like, you're getting all grannies and all that buying his book. <laughs> Is it all horrible? Yeah, but he's getting like, so everybody buying his book and it's bumping up the album sales. That's how they done it. Yeah, good idea. So. I mean, if- Fan, you you want that stuff anyway, don't you? You know, I've yeah. never, never grown out of that at all. You know, I want everything. <laughs> I like I like a band. You know, I, I go see a lot of gigs. I buy the vinyl, I buy the t-shirt because I know what it's like to be in a band, and I know these guys are getting paid hundred quid a night, and they're getting there. The bad vinyls cost more than that. You know, they're doing it for the love of it mainly. Yeah, so I like. To, I know it's not the same with your big your big bands, but there's not many of them about oh making millions. It's just like most people are just scraping a living. Mm. Oh, it's it's hard going for everything in the music industry, especially at the moment, and it's mental. Uh, yeah. After embrace after the embrace album, it was um, love is a basic need. Yeah, 
that is a, the first time I've heard a, a woman singing these. Yeah. So that I mean that was a different dynamic again. I, I thought it I thought it worked well. It was how well, did Danny feel that when he's I think it was Rick's idea, because uh, he'd been working uh, with uh because he's producers as well and he'd been working you know, mm-hmm. with other people's uh, records and I think he was thinking like Nick Cave and Kylie when they did that uh, uh was it Where yeah, the Wild, Wild Roses Grow or something? That sort of thing, and uh, it works. And you know, her sweet voice makes Danny seem gruffer and kind of it's, it's, it kind of brings out a nice tone to his voice. Yeah. Now if it's Nicole who does it, um, Rick's girlfriend who does that live for us, and uh, she's got a beautiful voice as well, probably better than the original. But right. So we'll do that occasionally. We we'll do that at festivals if she's available, but she's not always available. So is she a singer in her own right, then, Nicole? Yeah, Rick, Rick's in a band called Eva with his right. girlfriend, and like all through the lockdown, they've done a gig every week from their lounge and stuff. And you know, they're, they're really good, kind of electro pop, Kate, bits of Kate Bush in there, Cocteau Twins. It's, it's a uh-huh. really nice band. So that seems to be a, a thing with um, couples doing music together. Heard that a few times. The, the guy for the cooks, the lead singer of the cooks, I think he's he does something with his girlfriend. Uh, I think they've called Jewel or something. Yeah. Um, so it must be. I, I don't think I could make music with my life. Up for that or anything, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's awful, couldn't it? But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I and um, when I put that time as well, the would have been the anniversary of the the good blow out as well. I can mind coming to see you at the Barrowlands for that. And I got a mug. There was no tea towels, but I got a mug. Yeah, the nice with a yeah. Yeah, the nice, nice art design, eh? the the album cover. So I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a bad gig of yours at the Barrowlands. The Barrowlands is a place to I don't think you can do a bad gig at Barrowlands, you know. It's well known as well. I've never heard anyone say other than it's the best fucking gig in the country, really. Um, you know, it's one of those where, yeah, I want it at the start of the tour to get everyone on a high or save it to the end of the tour as a big celebration, you know, it's one of those. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I was trying to work out, as I say, um, back at the, the Drawing from Memory time. It was, we went to see you one Sunday and then you were playing again the following Sunday, two Sundays in a row at the Barrowlands. Yeah. So, would have tried to do Saturday Sunday, but it wouldn't have been available. You know. Right. So you think the different fingers usually do about three or four there, don't they? For yeah, weekend or whatever. Yeah, I just I went to see the Snuts on Wednesday, and that was him. They'd done three nights. Just a young band. I they'd done three nights in a row, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Absolutely smashed it. That's the first gig I've been to. For, well, that's locked in and all that. It was yeah, uh, there was a big festival in Wakefield at the weekend, um, Long Division, and I was, we were going to see. Uh, I think nine's going. Las Vegas were very good. Right. From 80s, if you remember, could. That Lindy Band from Leeds, they were good. Um, what's the name? I'm on the second. <laughs> That's it. Oh, yeah. 
Hands off Gretel, I ended up buying all the vinyl. And about three of the albums it cost me. Hands off Gretel, they're very good. Skunk and Nancy type, funky right. and metal. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, that's real. So uh, that was good. I think it was only half full. I think they reduced numbers so people wouldn't feel uncomfortable. But it was great to get a gig again. Well, I, I was made to go, made to go to a gig there. I was made to go to Transmat, the first day of Transmat. Was uh, the week before, uh, me and my mate went. I met my mate in the pub, but been that long for I've been to a festival. And I got to the train station; it was just full of kids. Mm. Uh, they're all like fat hooligans singing like fat songs and all that. And I met my mate in the pub, and when about half an hour, we decided that we weren't going to bother going to Transmat. We just going to a pub crawl. So we ended up in the pub trying to buy elbow tickets because elbow were playing at the academy and we were trying to shift our transmit tickets and buy elbow tickets instead. Yeah, like elbow good. Yeah. So what's um you've just released something as well, Celery Dreams, haven't you? Yeah, that's what obviously we locked down. Um all last year's festivals have gone all this year, you know, we didn't know what was happening. No gigs, nothing on the horizon, no money coming in. Most of our money's from live. Um, so it was a bit of a worrying time. And it was trying to, everyone trying to blue sky think, what, how can we earn some money? We thought, let's do a gig for Mickey's. Um, I think we, we got fans to vote on what songs they'd like us to play. And got, mm-hmm. got together, did a bit of rehearsing, did a gig. Felt like a real gig, actually, because it went out live on, you know, stream uh-huh. live. Well, you know, don't fuck up. Like it was like a real gig, you know. <laughs> Everyone's sober. We were driving, so he came and had a couple of drinks. Um, yeah, it was good. It was a guy. I remember driving home from it, and you know, I'm not someone I've ever watches embrace. I don't watch it as when we're on telly or anything. I'm yeah, slightly embarrassed, but I watched that that night, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Then we thought, let's get it together and uh, you know, get an album out while we can. You know, yeah. see play on vinyl at the moment because it's a massive six months waiting list for anything um yeah we were really proud of it um, went to number six in the vinyl charts or something right sales i thought what well, we should be in the top 40 charts but a lot of them were from abroad a lot of the sales were from like europe and america so i was really pleased with that right so what's what's the plans now going forward is uh well we've been in Passing all the all the the other thing we've been doing while we've been locked up is passing songs backwards and forwards and everyone working on them at home, sending them on. Mike does the drums on them, then he sends it to me and I put bass on. We send it back to Danny and Rick. They go yeah and there uh, and send it back again and we redo it, try a different approach. And so we got together probably about six eight weeks ago. We knocked down nine backing tracks in a couple of weeks. Right. And he's sung about seven of them now, I think. Um, we're due to get together in two weeks' time to go through another four or five ideas that was, we've been sending back and forth since. Uh, and then we'll, we'll be done in October. And it's a case of mixing it. Make sure, see what our manager thinks, because he's not heard a thing yet. Then if he loves it as much as we do, because it's full of big anthems, it's a lot ashes type songs it's not all sleepy ballads it's all really right. yes great tunes that still embrace but probably more like the tallies album i think more than 
what was the basic need, a bit more. Mm-hmm. Like that bit more. Um, so, is, well, is Rick producing it then? Yeah, it's, he's got his, his studio is now shrunk, he's just in his lounge basically, so we all sit in his lounge, that yeah. drunk it in another room and it's going... Kind of, I've seen how I do you, I think. I've seen how I do you, so it looked a bit cramped. <laughs> it sounds so amazing, though. He's got such amazing ears and he's got all the latest gear that you need. It just sounds brilliant. It sounds better than anything we've ever done, sonically, you know, and the songs are up there. So I'm really excited about it. Mm. Uh, you know, so, see, having like Rick producing it, does that speed things up then rather than? You have it again in what we're producer? I think so. I think with producers, we never, I don't think we really understood what they did until we worked with youth. And right. some youth, really, when he gets involved, he takes control. And you, you know, it's a lot of, for Danny, it was a lot of hard work because he's got his way of working. Danny's got his own way of working. And youth gets his way, whatever you do, is just prepared to argue all night, you know. Mm-hmm. So you told. And you come out with something. He always wanted to make us a big international band, so he kind of pushed us probably more commercial than we wanted to be. They wanted to get us, he always thought we sort of mid Atlantic, you know, Americans would like us as well as English people and Scottish people and Welsh people or whatever. So, um, yeah, he kind of pushed us that way a lot. And we felt slightly uncomfortable with it. But he's got a lot of tricks, a lot of production tricks, and uh, we've kind of learned from him, you know, like. With Ashes, when we took in Ashes, it was a little sleepy piano ballad. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he said to us, right, make it fall to the floor. Yeah. That kind of thing. We went, what? It's ballad? No, do it. And so, like, we argued for 10 minutes and then we did it. We thought, you know, that's all right, isn't it? And then we lived with it. We, we thought that's the way it was. It was right. So now, whenever we're stuck with something, we've got all these, like, do what you used to, speed it right up or slow it right down or just change key or just change approach. Mm. There's a song called Feels Like Glue, which is a really slow, like epic, spacey rock kind of thing, which was a, I think it's a B-side, it might be on the Too Good To Be A B-side thing. Um, and that was quite fast to start with, and it didn't work, it was lightweight, and he just yeah. like, yeah. And I think he made us all smoke a spliff, and then just like chill right out, and just like, here we go, really slow. Take I couldn't imagine that fast-paced. No. It not just couldn't hang it like that too close to it to see, you know, how it, how it comes out originally. You're kind of stuck with that. And sometimes you need someone outside to say, "That's this is this is what you do. Slow yeah. it down. Take the drums off it. I'll put the drums on, turn the guitar up, I'll take it off. You know, just someone who's not involved, you know, with the band. That's why you need a producer, I think. Yeah. Everyone's fighting their own corner and saying, I'm getting bass on this, whatever. And even though it might be better without bass on, you know. So you need someone who you trust. And we've learned a lot from him, you see, so I think we've, we've got a lot of tricks under it. So if you're saying um, October, so what are you, do you reckon that a release maybe next year or something? Definitely next year, but it's kind of, you know, uh, what, will it be summer, will it be spring? I have no idea. Mm. And traditionally, we've always put, we've always been told not to release stuff in the summer because everyone's too busy going on holiday and there's no gigs around. It's just festivals and wait to the autumn and then, you know, you tend to go on tour when the students go back, don't you, in September, October. Yeah. I don't know what happened. It's, um, we haven't even got a record label at the moment, so I manage all to sort of tell it around. 
Mm-hmm. And if no one said, oh, we prefer to do it ourselves, we'll do it ourselves. You know, it's no, not rocket science just to put a record out. Yeah. So Obviously, you keep all the money if you make anything as well. <laughs> <laughs> well what's going on as well, where you get a, another couple of bands into land shots with you and uh, Mike? Yeah, Mike? Yeah, that's just another thing, because we both, I mean, Mike's massive, and he's, he grew up with rock, whereas I grew up with punk, and he, you know, I were a punk, post-punk, he were rock, Led Zeppelin and all that, and prog, and then he got into all hair metal, which is awful in my book. But, uh, mm-hmm. but basically, we, we, it, he writes a lot of riffs, and I write a lot of riffs, and, you know, never ever get used to it. It was kind of like, why, should, why don't we form a little band? So we started to together. Luckily, that key, Beaver, who we mentioned earlier with the Afro on, as a like, keyboard tech, he joined in. Uh, Mike Shiraz, who's from a, a fantastic band called Mr. Shiraz. And then they've got Sam, who's from uh, Wayward Sons, a big rock band. And we just all get together, do about four hours rehearsal, knock a, knock a set together and go out and have a bit of a party. It's a bit of fun. You know, it's not nothing too serious. Uh, I would like to get a record out one day, but I've not massive aspirations of like hitting the charts and everything. It's just a bit, a bit nice to own, a bit of coloured vinyl. You know, yeah. Land Sharks. So you get Land Sharks, because uh, Land Sharks support it Embrace and Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was kind of like, because Hurricane number one, uh, I'm not quite sure of the reasons, but they, they couldn't do the rest of the tour, so we were short of a tour support. Mm-hmm. Just one day it was like, yeah, we could, yeah, we'll support you. So we rang them up. They came down. We played, played like forty minute set to a, a, a bemused embrace fans thinking, <laughs> <laughs> and we had a lot of fun doing it. But I don't really particularly like doing two two sets a night. It's like you come off stage with band sharks, then you straight back round with getting yeah. yourself embrace headspace. It's not good for you, really. And you get another yeah. one as well, haven't you? One one sided horse. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's another th- thing. Uh, what's the story about that is, I think about eight years ago, I was just like reading The Guardian and they were like, the future of punk. And it was this like, article they did and it mentioned Sleaford Mods, uh, Evil Blizzard, and the band called The Eagles. Now, I, I, straight away, I look on YouTube, Sleaford Mods thought this is fucking great. Evil Blizzard, there were a few little clips of them up. I thought, this is interesting. And then, you know, Eagles, I ended up buying records by all of them. And I go to Rebellion every year in in Blackpool, four-day punk festival, and Evil Blizzard were on. I thought, I'll go and check these out, because I've seen a little bit of them online. They all came on stage, they've got masks on and silly um, mm. outfits, and he's got his big belly out, and one of them's climbing speaker stacks, and they're jumping up, and just fighting on stage, and like kicking shit out of each other. I thought, this is one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. So I got home, and like, on Facebook, like, just, Checked him out, said, Ah, oh, came to see you at Blackpool, thought you were brilliant. One of the best things I've seen. And then it turns out two of the band are massive, massive Embrace fans. So Mark and Pete, and I end up like Mark sending me loads, Mark sending me loads of his songs. He does his own sort of like folky type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, can't remember what happened then, but I think we, uh, basically, he wanted to record with Rick, me, and Mickey, and Mike, and just thought, some reason he managed to persuade us to get together in the studio and record an album with him. And 
it was it's really good actually it's it's got a really distinctive voice you might not like it but if you do like it you'll you like what he does and he's just a very very creative person he's constantly churning out music constantly gigging he just wants to it's like a middle-aged man who's finally found what he wants to do with his life yeah. you know, he's been working for you know, dhs for all these years and he's got all this pent of in creativity and yeah i'd like to do more with him you know it's just always about time and the money really because every time i do a gig with him it's always impressing or somewhere and mm. hotels and suddenly you realize you rehearsing and working for no money and it's costing you. Yeah. <laughs> That's my life mainly, to be honest. <laughs> In lockdown, I've done another album with Mike's neighbour. He's got a neighbour who's very talented. So we've we recorded about 15 songs with him in lockdown. And uh, that's very sort of chilled out, proggy. And God, God knows what it is, really. It's the right mixture of stuff. And that's another middle-aged man who's finally found his voice. And we haven't, we haven't got a name for the band, but once we get a name for the band, we'll, we'll stick that out sometime. So, oh, right. yeah. so that's gone for release as well, yeah? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Once again, we'll probably just do a few gigs and stick out a vinyl or something. But it keeps you busy. I mean, you've got to keep busy in lockdown. I would have gone mad without all this stuff going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just how that podcast came about as well. That's just... Like for lockdown, that the podcast came about, so there's another middle-aged man finding his voice in a different <laughs> way. Um, so that's the last part of the podcast, obviously. Right. Well aware of it. Time for heroes. Uh, you pick four heroes, or as many heroes as you want, really, to come for dinner. Uh, so... At first, I thought I'd go for musical ones. I thought like Lemmy would be good fun, you know. David Bowie would be very interesting. Iggy Pop would be great, you know. But then I don't know. I think just as important to me is like comedy, and I've always like just as like for me the, the one of the biggest influences in my life was Monty Python. Mm-hmm. Growing up, like, I had older friends who were listening to Python and stuff like that. So I thought. Michael Palin, it'd be a very nice, interesting book. But then, so yes, we were interested as kids, but when the first real comedy for teenagers was the young ones, uh-huh. and I don't know, but the young ones, when we were at school, we knew every every word of it. We'd skive out of school, go and watch it, get the VHS out, and we'd all watch it, and I'm tend to be mm-hmm. Rick. And it's like Rick Mail, I think, yeah, in the last 10 years of all the, celebrities that have died. Rick Mail is the one that really depressed me. I don't know why. He's always been there and I think because on lockdown as well, there's been a lot of comfort watching TV as well as everything else. You know, as long as we've all been comfort eating and drinking too much. I've been watching a lot of old stuff, you know, old films and all stuff like this. I've been watching a lot of bottom and I've you know and I Rick Mail's my my comedy hero, I think. And probably Yeah. It was punk as well it was kind of punk comedy and changed everything and i'm a massive fan of the alternative comedy i never liked joke telling i never liked the bird of mannings and all that horrible crap no. the, the guy in the pub that always tell you loads of jokes and you kind of have to laugh along because you didn't want to offend anybody but i want my kind of stuff at all so i was always quite you know more alternative than all that stuff so yeah i'd have rick mail and I just, it'd be fantastic. You just got him there already. So it's already mm-hmm. fantastic. And my second one is another comedian. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always loved uh, Bob Mortimer and uh, probably my favourite person in the world at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you listen to his podcast, but he's got a podcast out called Atletico Men's, which is absolutely hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously the fishing show, which I think is the best thing on telly at the moment. I watched that. Uh-huh. I watched six episodes last night. Absolutely love it. It makes me feel good about the world. And uh, I just love his childish sense of humour. And he just seems to right. He's got a really gentle, lovely sense of humour. And, and I just want to be his friend. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I want to go drinking and stuff and have a laugh. And I, it seems like his childhood was all about lads making each other laugh, being as stupid as possible. It's all about being, being an idiot, you know, nothing horrible, nothing violent, just being an idiot and doing stupid stuff. And I like that. Very much like that you were. So, yeah, that's, I think that's me sorted already with them two. Um, what was my third one? My third one, I would actually get someone, like I mentioned him already, John Peel, because, like I said, I used to go to bed early just to listen to him. I used to love, I just love the guy. He got me into music. Got, he created India, I think. He's one of the most important people in, in the musical history of this country. He created all the enemy in the snobbery and mm-hmm. everything. I think he was really important. And there's not really a great book out about him or anything. There's no massive, I think there's, his autobiography is written after he died and it's not, his biography rather, it's not very good. And I just think he knew every band. He went to see gigs constantly. Yeah. Another fall, and I'm a massive fan of the fall. And I'd like to know his stories and you know, sit around and listen to him talk about all these. I could ask him about anybody to know them, and he's done a session with them. So because I'm yeah. quite nosy and gossipy, and I want to go, what's he like? What's he like? What did he, you know? So I'd love all that. You know? Like the Glastonbury, like, like your BBC coverage of Glastonbury, it's, it's, it's good, but it's, it's, it's not the same with John Peel in it now. And I liked his amateur, it was, it was amateurish as well. And he used to put records on at the wrong speed or he'd put the bass yeah. out and stick. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I'll put that on again. If you liked a song that much, you'd play it twice. I do yeah. that. I piss people off by doing that, by playing the same song all night long. I get into a zone when I'm drunk, just listen to the same thing. <laughs> so I think it'd be great for me because I'd just question him all night. Then the other ones will seem a bit weird. But um, when we recorded our second album, Draw From Memory, we were in stately home, derelict stately home kind of thing in Cotswolds. And it was the first time we entered in a light pollution in my life, probably. So it's like we'd go out at night, have a few beers, look up the stars and see the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. Which you don't normally see, you will do in Scotland, but not yeah. down Yorkshire, you know what I mean? It's proper clear nights, beautiful summer, sat there, watch. We'd all go, what's that star? Is that a planet? What's that? And none of us knew a bloody thing, you know, is that that's slightly red? Is that Mars? No idea, no idea. So I ended up getting uh, into cosmology. And once you start reading about cosmology, it sort of takes you into quantum physics and you start getting really... It's <laughs> been about 25 years. I've just been obsessed reading about quantum physics and stuff. And it confuses the fuck out of me. And I don't know anyone can understand it, but I want... Brian Cox uh-huh. explain it all to me and he seems like a top bloke and I listen to a lot of his podcasts as well and I can just ask him lots of questions so mm-hmm. this part is about me asking people questions and then laughing at Rick Mail and Bob Mortimer I think it'd be fantastic yeah that's a that's a, a, a right good 
um, bunch of people together. I don't think Bob Bob Mortimer would just be in a carry on all the way through that, right enough, but. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I could yeah. pick a lot of, you know, Billy Connolly would be fantastic. You know, there's loads of comedians I really love in this way. There's loads of, yeah, loads of musicians, but I think, yeah, they've got what I need there. Yeah. And what would you cook them? What I cook, it's got to be a curry, hasn't it? Right. The uh, chicken, uh, chicken spinach, where the famous chicken spinach and potato is my kind of, Speciality, right? Quite spicy as well. Okay. There's some good curries up in Glasgow. We used to go out in Glasgow and Edinburgh. There's always like a Billy Connolly recommended curry house. You must have (laughs) a lot of curries or something, (laughs) and they're always very good. So yeah, Yeah. it's definitely curry. I'm I'm not the greatest of cooks, but I can do a mean curry. No, I'm kind of the same. I'm not the greatest of cooks, but. Um, my missus has started a new job and I need to make the dinner every yeah. night now for what seems to be the rest of my life. So I, do a, big, I get to do a big pot like it'll last you about three days and it gets hotter and better as it goes on. Yeah. Yeah, I might make a curry now. Right, that's us then anyway. That's um thanks very much for coming on. That was enjoyable, I enjoyed that. Nice. Yeah. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy.